0: Welcome to the Research Briefs Podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, Professor of Engineering Education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what we're finding out, and how their research is being used. My guest today is Dr. Jason Morphew a visiting professor at Purdue University. Jason has a dual appointment in the School of Engineering Education in the College of Engineering and the Department of Curriculum and Instruction in the College of Education. He conducts research on self-regulated and co-regulated learning with a focus on embodied learning in STEM. Today, I've asked him to tell us about his research on embodied learning. That's a topic I find particularly fascinating. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome you, Jason. Uh, Thank you for coming to Research Briefs.
1: Thank thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So um, I should tell folks that we're recording this on Zoom, even though you and I have um, physical offices that are very close together.
1: Um, yeah, but, we, we could we could be just doing this right through the wall, couldn't we? We, we could
0: be doing this through the <laughs> wall, but we are not. Um, so I've had a chance to meet you a bit, but uh, the audience is not as lucky as me. So could you, or, or many of the audience aren't anyway, um, could you tell us a little bit about how you became an education researcher?
1: Yeah, so I um, growing up, uh, i was I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. and um, i I took a physics class as a senior, and the physics te- teacher was was a person who was close to retirement, but he was bouncing all over the walls and he had all sorts of stories about uh, going on uh, on trips and taking pictures where he wasn't allowed to take pictures. And he played the accordion. and so it was just one of those things that really got me interested in in teaching. Um, and you know, and my family has a has has a history of being teachers as well. My father's a teacher. My aunts and uncles are teachers. Uh, my my sister is a teacher as well now. And so it just kind of something that I was interested in, in teaching and uh, s- science and math t- tended to be the things that I was good at. So that's that's kind of the direction that I went. Um, I didn't I didn't know anything about engineering until uh, until much later. In there, I knew that it was a thing, but I had no idea what it what it was. Uh, so I so I went to the University of Nebraska um, mostly uh, for football tickets, um, but also because they had a really highly ranked uh, teachers college at the at the time as well. Uh, but but it was uh, one of those things, and so we did that. Um, Nebraska had a had a really nice program when I was there, where you could get it, a natural science endorsement, so you were endorsed to teach all the science uh, courses. And so it took a little bit longer, but and I took every 100 and 200 level science course, I think on campus, but, uh, it was certainly, uh, some, something that was, it was kind of nice. And so I could really start to see the interplay between disciplines and domains and, and stuff like that. And that, that part really got me interested as well. And so that, that ends up playing, uh, I think a big role in, in how, why I kind of, I kind of like to have my research focus on the intersection of, of domains and areas and to research traditions. So, so I, uh, Graduated uh, from the University of Nebraska. Um, I was dating my my current uh, partner, and uh, they were in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. So I did my student teaching in Fort Collins. I taught in a small school uh, called uh, Alt in Alt, Colorado, which is about twenty-five miles east of uh, Fort Collins. And it was uh, the happened to be the first job that I that I knew the department had the had the uh, uh, the collegiality, the the the, the uh, mindset in terms of how to, how to educate students that, that I would fit into. Um, so I actually got my first uh, job as teaching math, and so I was basically there was two of us in the math department for the district, and this is uh, this is uh, kind of kind of interesting. So I, my my uh, my uh, first job was teaching math and we had a we had a, a curriculum called college preparatory math and so the the idea was to to situate everything in in, in an activity so every unit starts with an activity and then you spend the entire unit and then trying to come up with the math that underlies that activity and so there was a lot of it turns out to be a lot we did a lot of engineering design challenges in these activities and we were then used the the challenge to to, to make measurements and then use the measurements to, to learn the math concepts. And so that was, that was really basically my, my, my first position. Uh, then my, my wife uh, went, to, went, went through med school. And so we, I followed her to Omaha and I taught in Arlington, Nebraska, which is about 45 miles north of Omaha. And there I taught science. And so, I, again, it was, it was one of three, three science teachers for the district. And so I taught, you know, everything from uh, integrated eighth grade science to physics, chemistry. Uh, we did robotics. We did uh, chemistry uh, two, some some uh, organic chemistry. We kind of did a lot of, uh, lot of things. Um, at the same time, I was always wanting to come back to uh, to to higher education to come back to uh, get a degree to work with uh, pre-service teachers. That was that was my original original goal. And I found out I, I really couldn't do that well and teach, especially in the small district where, you know, you're, you're teaching five, you know, four or five preps, you're, you're running two or three clubs. You're doing something with sports. Uh, I ran the concession stand. And so it was just, it was something where I had to do one or the other because I couldn't do both well. And so when my wife went to residency in Wichita, I decided to go back and, uh, and, uh, Pursue the higher education, so I got a master's at Wichita State in educational psychology, um, and it was there that I kind of really developed a, a, a real, real uh, enjoyment for for doing educational research. And so we did a lot of stuff on uh, nature of science beliefs and how uh, the, the the tasks that you give students or or grad students or scientists can impact their nature of science beliefs, but it really has to have the task itself has to challenge their belief in some way in order to see the belief change. It's kind of the way we, what we, what we found there. And so after my wife uh, finished residency, then we, uh, we finally got to, to let, to, to have, have me make the next move. So we, we chose to go to Champaign, Illinois. And so when I was, when we went to Champaign, Illinois, I worked with a, uh, Dr. Jose Mestre, he was my advisor. He was one of the people doing science uh, research. And uh, so he was dual appointment in uh, educational psychology and physics. And so that kind of uh, was, was the path that took me to, uh, to, to education research. So one
0: of the things that um, you shared with me when we had our planning meeting um, that amazed me as well is that you also had a, a couple children while all this was happening as well. <laughs> yes. And you were, what was it? You were bouncing the baby in one arm and typing your dissertation in the other. And
1: yeah. Yeah. When we were, when I was at Wichita, I, I was I was working my master's thesis and my wife was of course a resident. So she was 80 to 120 hours a week. And so I kind of stayed home while I was writing my, my, uh, my thesis and uh, we had, had, the, had uh, the, our firstborn, and he, he uh, would not take a nap if you laid him down. You put him down, he's awake, but if you hold him, he'll take an hour or two nap. And so I basically t- did a lot of my typing at my thesis with one, one hand while I was holding him on the other hand. And then uh, for my dissertation, uh, we had our second one, it was, was really young. And so he got exposed to uh, measles right before he got his second uh, shot for immunization. And so he he had to quarantine for for uh, I was almost almost a month I think, and so there was another time where we're, we're working on the dissertation and we get to stay home with a with a little one.
0: <laughs> you learned how for, how your arm not to fall asleep I would imagine, or or how to uh, type with your arm falling asleep with a little baby on it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, get to learn all the all the tricks with with extra pillows and yes. <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs>
0: So uh, the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today was this idea of embodied cognition and embodied learning and and the fascinating things you've discovered. Um, Could you start out by telling us a little bit about what embodied cognition and embodied learning are?
1: Yeah. So embodied cognition is, is really a broad field that kind of encompasses uh, you know theories from several different research traditions and so there, the, the, there's lots of several research traditions that are kind of, kind of hitting on this idea of embodied cognition they're approaching it from different perspectives and so they've got different uh, kind of theories that, that kind of all fall into this umbrella of embodied cognition um, and uh, there's the, the, the theories of embodied cognition can range from you know some from having a very limited role for, for the body in, in terms of cognition. To uh, radical inactivism, which is which is a uh, position that really challenges traditional theories of brain-based cognition, um, and so they, they, that position uh, really challenges the idea that that uh, knowledge is really stored as symbolic representations in the brain. So, so however, all the uh, all the different theories of embodied cognition really subscribe to two main premises, uh, and so they all kind of agree on these on these two things. And the first is that the actions of, of, the, of the mind or the of the brain can't be dissociated from the body. so in other words, cognition isn't really restricted to the brain. We can offload uh, some cognitive functions to the brain. Our perceptual system is, is, it kind of impacts the way that our our minds process information. and so there's there's definitely some impact of, of the physical body on on cognition itself. And the second uh, premise is that um, moving the body can be an act of cognition. And so that means that movement can reflect cognition um, that's, that's verbalizable, and it can also reflect cognition that's non-verbalizable. So it could be this implicit understanding, this, this kind of uh, deeply held uh, understanding of how so- something works, um, that that, that the, uh, the, the person may not have the formalisms to, to be able to verbalize their their understandings. Of things. And so, though that's generally the, the, the two main premises that all theories of co- embodied cognition hold. Um, my personal uh, view, my personal theory of embodied cognition has two additional premises. Uh, one is that abstract conceptual understanding is grounded in, in embodied experience. Uh, so, for example, when we think about how we how we come to learn about electricity and electrical current, uh, generally most most of the most of that uh, understanding begins by making an analogy or thinking about water moving through a pipe. Is kind of the kind of the the the, the way that we kind of begin to conceptualize electrical current, and so it, it's really grounded in this this other physical experience, and then through analogies and metaphors, we can kind of construct an, uh, this this abstract conceptual understanding of something that's maybe less tangible, less physical. Um, And so this implies that cognition surrounding abstract concepts is really driven by conceptual metaphors, perceptual simulations, rather than on symbolic uh, manipulation within the mind, uh, rather, rather than solely on the the symbolic manipulation. So there there may be room for symbolic manipulation, but there's these other processes that seem to be more body-based or more uh, physical-based that that also appear to impact cognition.
0: So Jason, how is embodied cognition different from embodied learning? Or is it
1: different? And and so the, the field of embodied learning is going to be drawing on theories of embodied cognition. So again, that it could take many different Forms depending on which theory of embodied cognition that people are drawing on. Uh, but the, the basic idea of embodied learning is that um, we can design learning activities and learning environments uh, that are going to aim to make explicit connections between uh, the conceptual understanding and specific well-chosen body movements. Um, so, for example, we have a, a paper that just came out in the Journal of Educational Psychology talking about a, a really large uh, augmented reality uh, science simulation that we, that we made uh, at the university of Illinois when I was there uh, that basically looked at teaching uh, uh, exponential growth. Um, So we, we did it in a uh, context of earthquakes. So the Richter scale is exponential and then acids and bases, the pH scale being exponential. And so we, uh, we uh, interviewed lots of people. We figured out what, gestures are kind of related to a, a really strong conceptual understanding of, of different mathematical things. So if we think about adding as, as a, as a concept, people generally say, well, if I take one, one thing and I move it to a pile, then I'm adding to that pile. And so that gesture of actually picking up a physical object and moving it becomes really connected to the the, the concept of adding. And for multiplying they, you know, most, most people that, that, that really, Uh, understood exponential growth would talk about how if I have a pile of things in my hand and then I make a copy and then fold it over, that's doubling, for example. And so this idea of folding is really connected to this, the concept of what multiplication is. And so we've connected those body movements to these concepts and we engage then students in the science simulation and we found, you know, uh, greater learning, uh, greater transfer, and uh, greater engagement than may, maybe more traditional ways to teach these, these topics. And so that, that'd be one example of what embodied learning might look like.
0: Now, I believe in that article, you found that there was a difference between looking at the acid and bases versus um, looking at the, the other condition.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we, in that article, we, we did find a, a slight, we found that acids and bases was a little bit more difficult uh, for students in terms of getting the, uh, the kind of maybe the, uh the, the ideas. And part of the reason is the scale flips. And so it, it's a little less intuitive. So if I increase the, the hydronium concentration for acids, the pH actually goes down. And so that, that there's a little bit of that, that, that kind of works against people. And the other part is the, the, the way that the simulation was created is that we had just in time uh, instruction by the people, by the uh, researchers that were running the, the, the study. And, uh, and I think that the, the ability to recognize when that just in time information was needed was a little bit weaker in the acid and base context. Um, probably, you know, mostly because we didn't have re- uh, all, of the re- all of the researchers weren't uh, necessarily trained as educators. Mm-hmm. And so, recognizing when to put that, give that, that information, I think was a little bit weaker in the acid-base context.
0: Do you think too that when you were talking
1: about the Richter scale, that you know earthquakes are things that you
0: can feel? Yeah. Even if we've never been in an earthquake, we might be able to imagine what that would be like. Versus acid, acid and bases is more
1: invisible. I, I, yeah, I, I, I do agree that that that, that uh, the idea of acidity and basicity is is a little less tangible than an earthquake, and so there may be something with the uh, co- the concept area that 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 makes the, you know that particular uh, that particular simulation maybe more or less effective depending on the the, the uh, concept that you're that they're teaching. I, I will say that the 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 biggest growth that we found the biggest. Advantage was in was in this really abstract idea of, of exponential growth, and so the the, the actual content areas were, were you know showed growth, but there's this idea that we that connection to that really abstract idea of exponential growth is where we found the biggest gains for the for the simulation. So there was there was a connection to to being able to have this physical uh, manifestation of this abstract concept uh, that was that was providing a, a big benefit. And so the gesture
0: was really important to the students to be able to to
1: learn about. Yeah, that. and the fact the fact that the gesture is connected to a, uh, kind of an explicit uh, embodiment of the concept, right? And so this is different than maybe kinesthetic learning, as as broadly conceived by by by, by people. That that it's not just about movement, uh, and the movement itself is not the thing that's that's leading to the learning. It's this. Uh, being able to f- make a, represent- a manipulable representation of the abstract ideas is really the, the key uh, in embodied learning.
0: You have to have a very particular kind of movement that makes sense with a concept you're trying to teach versus
1: let's just move around. Yeah. And, and then the other piece I think that's really important is the, the ability for the students to really explicitly reflect on that connection. And so the students being able to make that connection uh, really broadly, as opposed to having the student just make the move. That you know, if they if they were to make this the folding movement, for example, they may or may not uh, have any benefit. But it's that ability for the student to make that a connection that this folding movement is is actually a manipulation of this concept is kind of the key. Cool.
0: How would an instructor get a sense of what?
1: those movements might be uh so uh, the first thing that we usually will do uh, is kind of you know in our group talk about you know like what what's that abstract conceptual thing what's the what's the key learning objectives and then what are ways that we would might visualize that in our group and so that'd be the first step that we that we did uh, then the next step is to go out and interview a bunch of bunch of your target audience and ask them, uh, you know, just on a one-on-one setting, you know, explain to me what doubling is, for example. And we use uh, something we call the show me prompt. And we'll, so we'll, they'll be at a table, no, no resources. and We'll just say, show me what doubling would look like. And so they're forced to kind of think about gestures and, and, uh, doing that. And as they're explaining this, this, idea, this manipulable, uh, physical representation of their of their understanding seems to emerge um and and depending on how strong their conceptual understanding is we may see different versions of that so we had a lot of symbolic representations when we asked about doubling so they'd make an x with their finger and then put hold up two fingers right so times two well that doesn't really get at the concept that's just that's just another symbol mm-hmm. and so so it's kind of an interesting thing that you can kind of see uh learning progressions through gesture
0: yeah that's a fascinating idea so do you videotape the students while they're
1: doing oh yeah so we'll we'll have well videotape students as we're as we're having the interviews and we'll go through and and figure out which which gestures emerge and stuff like that uh one of the nice things about the uh the the simulation that we made is it used uh um a one-shot gesture recognition system, and so what was interesting is we could have the students gesture uh, according to their conceptual understanding, and train the system to to recognize those gestures as opposed to training the student to make a gesture, right? And so we really made that that connection between their con the conceptual understanding and the gesture really really strong in that case. So we'd ask them when they came in to use the simulation, how, what do you how do you, how do you show me what adding looks like? And then we would have them train the system for what adding or linear growth would look like. Cool. Yeah. That's very neat. Very yeah. Neat.
0: So I, I have to ask you about um, the research behind an article, which I, I've told you I think is one of the best titles that I've come across. And uh, my former students will tell you how much I love to think about titles. So. Um, and that is that you have an article that says seeing and doing is not believing. Um, So could you say a little bit about that particular experiment or study?
1: Yeah, and so when we're thinking about embodied cognition, we're thinking that there's this interplay between um, kind of your your body-based functions, perception and gesture and movement, and Cognition, so this, these conceptual understandings and that set, and uh, brain representations and those type of things, and so there's a there's a there's a connection between these areas, and generally it's been you know the traditional way of looking at it is that perception is is you know we take in um, you know information and we use that then to build our concepts. And embodied cognition really sees this as more of a uh, more of a dynamic situation, and so the idea that your concepts then can, can impact, you know, your perception is kind of kind of an interesting idea. And, and actually, this this paper was uh, was originally uh, the startup for. There was two two main main things that, that started. And so one, uh, when I was teaching, um, we uh, I was teaching physics to eighth graders, and so we always had the demonstration where we had a heavy object and a light object. And if I drop them at the same time, which one hits first? And of course, you know, three quarters of the, of the students will say the heavy thing hits first. And so then you actually go up in front and you do the, the demonstration. And what really blew my mind is, you know, you drop the objects, they hit the same time. And half the class would say, yep, the heavy object hit first, we were right. And and I couldn't understand. Wait, you, you just saw them hit at the same time. How could you see something different? And I would do that. I would do that experiment that the demonstration four or five times, and we'd still have about fifteen percent of the class convinced that the heavy object was hitting first. And so there was something about that, just showing people or a demonstration or just having them do a lab, wasn't enough to really have them uh, change their their ideas, their conceptions about it, about a particular topic. And so when I was at Illinois. Uh, my advisor was telling me a story about uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. And there was a video of a person riding in a boat and there was a uh, raft that was being t- pulled behind the, the the speedboat, And it was clear that, you know, the, the distance between the boat and the raft was too much. Nobody could make that jump, but because they were going really fast, the person on the boat set thought, well, if I just jump straight up, the boat will move and then I'll fall straight down into the raft. And of course, you know, what happens is he he jumps, uh, falls in the water, then gets run over by the raft, and, and so the same idea that this 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 you know expectation is really driving their perception of the situation. And so we decided we would look at at something where people have a really strong and generally wrong idea uh, about how something works, um, even though we experience it consistently through our lives and we do it. We, we are able to navigate successfully. So we, we kind of cued on balances as as this idea that most people, unless you have, have uh, inner ear issues or, or something like that can balance successfully. You know, so as you're walking around, you're going to start to tip one way and you're going to stop yourself from balancing or from falling. And, you know, most people have that experience. And, uh, if you ask them, you know, if I start to fall in one direction do I swing my arms in the same direction or the opposite direction to stop my falling? Most people are going to say the opposite direction, which is not how we balance. We have to, we swing our arms in the same direction to conserve angular momentum, which causes our body to rotate back to balanced. And so we have this really strong idea of, of, uh, how balancing works. That's wrong. It that doesn't match up with our experience. And so we thought, well, what if we just showed people a video of a person balancing and then we faked a video of a person balancing the wrong way and just had them to try and decide which one's right. And so we did that. Uh, luckily, uh, Illinois has a green screen room. So we were able to successfully make a video of a person balancing incorrectly. And then, uh, we, we, uh, we showed people that, and, uh, it was about 10, 15% of the people could identify the, the correct video. Uh, the best we ever did was at a physics conference and it was about 30% of the people that could identify the correct video. And so this really strong idea that we have an expectation for how something works and it affects how we perceive the, 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 uh, the, the phenomenon. So we decided, well, let's do it, Let's take it one more step. Let's just show a person, a video of a person balancing. It's the correct video. And all we wanted people to do is just watch the video and say, which way do their arms move? So extremely easy uh, task. Uh, half the people just watched the video and reported which way their arms moved. And the other half made, predicted which way their arms would move before they watched the video. And so if we just show people the video of a person balancing, about 95% of the people identify the arm movement correctly. But if they predict which way their arms are going to move, it goes down to about 65 to 70% of the people are getting it correct. And so there's this huge uh, difference in perception based on whether we cue your expectation for of the situation. Uh, so then we manipulated lots of parts of the experiment uh, to see what if we could improve that. Uh, we found that if we if we make the video less ambiguous, so we only show the, the first arm movement and then turn off the video, then then people can can uh, observe the right thing
0: so what you have found contradicts what people are often told about what you should do with students to help them um, change their conceptions and you know the, the advice will be have them think about what will happen and then show them and they'll see that they were wrong and they'll change their mind but what you're saying is not only will seeing what's really happening not necessarily change their mind. They might not even see it correctly. And that if you ask them to predict what's gonna happen, you might actually be strengthening their inability to actually see what's happening. So, so that's kind of mind blowing in a way. So what should instructors do instead Of the thing that they're always told to do,
1: yeah. So that's that's a that's that's a great point, and and I think uh, Bill Brewer has has some really good work uh, on conceptual change and and uh, and people's response to discrepant information, and and he 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 found uh, that the last thing that people want to do is is conceptual change, and so if there's ambiguous information. So in in balancing case, you move your arms to to stop yourself from falling. And then you generally bring yourself back up to balanced. And so that second movement is what people will cue on because that fits with their, their, their preconceived idea. Right. So that's why if we stop the video halfway, they, they report the right thing. And so there's, we we can reduce the discrepancy of the, of the uh, discrepant information, right. Dropping two heavy things, uh, heavy and a light thing the moment they hit is, is so fast that that is inherently discrepant, or, or, or uh, um, that, that's inherently ambiguous, and so that uh, that 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 becomes an issue where if you cue people's expectations before something ambiguous, they can actually report the wrong thing. Now there's a, there's a big dis- debate in the cognitive psychology literature on whether it's the actual perception of the event that gets that gets changed. Or how people interpret and encode the, the, the event that that, that happens, um, but but from a, from the a teaching perspective, you know those those end up being the same right same thing right. Uh, so then the the other piece that that uh, that I think teach that instructors will want to do then is re, you know, in addition to reducing ambiguity, is to really build on this model based uh, cognition. So it's not about uh, just eliciting an expectation but eliciting what the model is for the student what's what's the conceptual what's the conceptual model the students using if we ask students then to say what information would change this conceptual model would would tell you that you need a change and explicitly having students reflect on that kind of will kind of short circuit this automatic processing of rejecting information just because it doesn't fit with the conceptual model or your or this the individuals a, uh reconceiving the, the perceptual information to fit their, their, uh, their model. Interesting, interesting.
0: So Jason, this is just such a fascinating field. I am um, thinking we might inspire some people to wanna to do some research in embodied cognition or learning. Um, what advice
1: would you have for people doing this kind of research? So, I, yeah, I think that there are a number of things that, that somebody that's interested in this area would, will want to do. And I think the, one of the biggest things is to really um, have, a, have a real deep understanding of what, what specific contexts and, and concepts that, 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 that you want to investigate. So getting at the, the uh, really underlying uh, conceptual metaphors that the, the, these concepts are built on uh, so for example we have a we have a, a grant that we're, we've just submitted to the National Science Foundation to look at uh, statistics learning and, and, and using gesture and so a lot of the a lot of the things like variance or um, uh, regression um, an, uh, analysis of variance all of those those things are really built on this idea of distance and so so we're looking at at, at using um enactments that, that enact these distances in, in ways that students are going to be able to distinguish between uh different types of, of measures. And so that's that's one thing that we're we're looking at doing. Um, and and trying to, you know, thinking also with, with the, the uh COVID uh context that we're that we're in, how do we how do we take uh the types of everyday interactions that, that people have with instructors where there's gesture and a movement and that type of stuff and how do we make that Translate into an online setting. How do we how do we recreate the in person experience uh, in terms of embodiment for an online setting?
0: So, what ideas do you have about that last point?
1: About yeah. So, so yeah.
0: That without giving away your ideas. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think the uh, the idea that you know finding those conceptual those those conceptual understandings that connect to this particular physical movement, and finding ways to cue those in, in more natural ways, uh, in kind of in, in an embodied setting or an online setting where we can really get at this embodiment. And so, uh, there's lots of research that looks that looks at how cueing a gesture uh, can can help uh, students move that make that uh, change to a to a, a more aligned uh, conceptual perspective. I know uh, there's a lot of uh, gesture research. So Martha Alabali and Susan Susan Cook, Michelle Perry, uh, Susan Golden Meadow do, have done a lot of great work on gesture and uh, gesture speech mismatches. And so I think I think there's there's room in, in this designing online experiences to to try and capture those moments. And what they've found is that the gesture speech mismatch happens at, at a point where people are are primed for conceptual learning. Hmm. And so they have this, this implicit understanding, this embodied understanding of something, but they don't have the, the tools to verbalize it or connect it to a conceptual uh, schema. And so instruction at that point is really uh, in, in effective. And so in an online environment, there, there, are there ways to identify those moments would be, would be something else that I think would be really exciting to, to explore. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Well, I do also wanna let the listeners know that um, we're not just teasing them with these ideas of some of these very cool papers you've done that there'll be, uh, the citations will be on the website for the um, the engineering education website, which is just at uh, Google, Purdue engineering education podcast, and you will come up with the, the website for it which is different than the place you go to actually download the web, the uh, podcast, although you can do that on the website as well. So uh, Jason, thank you so much for this. This, this is just intriguing work and um, I'm fascinated by it. I think the listeners will be too. And thank you so much for sharing this. Um, I can't wait to see what else you folks do.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was really, really, uh, really fun.
0: Well, thank you very much. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.